Heavenly Father, we ask now as we see the person that Jesus met, as we see the problem that this person had and as we hear the promise that Jesus makes, we ask please that we too would know ourselves to be people that Jesus seeks to meet, that we too would recognise the problem in our own lives and so that we might grasp hold of the promise that Jesus makes too. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Who do you think Jesus is? I'll take a moment, think about it. Who do you think Jesus is? Now I can imagine in a room like this, we might have a spectrum of answers, a range if you like. Down this end, uh, there might be the people for whom Jesus isn't real or, or some sort of construct or fable, a myth if you like. Perhaps you might be into the conspiracy theories about Jesus. He's not really a person of history. Now, if you Google search Jesus conspiracies, you can spend hours chasing down the rabbit hole, as it were, all the way from the more fantastic kind of he married Mary Magdalene and there's a line of children and the church's biggest secret is protecting that bloodline all the way through to aliens and all sorts of interesting things. Now, whether, whether you're into the conspiracy kind of stuff or you just think he's not a figure of history, Jesus isn't real, he's kind of this end of the spectrum. Who do you think Jesus is? Now, as we move down the spectrum, perhaps we have those who recognise that Jesus is a person in history. He was a real human being. He lived, he breathed, he walked around Galilee. These days you'd be hard-pressed to find a scholar who doesn't think Jesus was a person in history. But all the supernatural stuff, that's a bit much. The miracles, the demons, the God stuff, the resurrection from the dead, I mean, all of that's a bit much. Maybe Jesus was a good teacher. He had things to teach us, things that we can learn from him, how to live a moral life. But we keep going down the spectrum and and we cross over perhaps an imaginary supernatural line and Jesus really is a creature of, of spirit or of the supernatural. The miracles really were miracles, but Jesus is perhaps one of God's great creations, some sort of special angel or amazing prophet. And we keep going and where I think Christians by and large land, is Jesus as God himself. The maker entered into the world, the creator into the creation. Who do you think Jesus is? Now who Jesus is dictates what influence, what place he has in your life. If you're down this end with the conspiracy theories, then the most Jesus ever does in your life is provide you with half an hour's entertainment on a Facebook discussion, right? I mean, that's kind of, you're arguing about this or that, or what colour were his eyes, or is he really real, and all the rest of it. And you don't think about Jesus very much. As you move through this way, perhaps Jesus starts to become a bit more important. And certainly for Christians, Jesus is the one who directs our paths and who is very, very important in our lives. Jesus makes claims about himself. In this passage, he makes one specific claim about himself, which if it is real and if it is true, is some of the greatest news our world has ever heard. Now in this passage, Jesus meets a person who has a problem. And he makes that person a promise. Three Ps, good little structure. Uh, In your bulletin, you'll find that structure. If you're taking notes, it'll help keep your hands warm. It'll help keep your brain engaged. First of all, Jesus meets a person. 
Now he's, he's having to travel again. He was down south in Galilee where his baptism happened. If you've been coming the last few weeks, you know all about John the Baptist and the things that happened down there and his disciples. And now he's traveling from Galilee towards Sorry, from Judea towards Galilee. Let me, let me get my geography right. There's down south of the Jordan River in Judea and he's travelling towards Galilee in the north. And along the way, we read in verse 4, he had to go through Samaria. Now, whether that's a geographical reference, that was kind of the way they went, or whether it's some sort of mission or plan or divine thing he had to do, off he goes through Samaria. And along the way, he meets a very improbable person. I'm curious, actually, did anyone have a really, really good unexpected person they met when they shared before? Well, I mean, Joe, we know you met the, you know, Yana Pittman. We know that one. It's okay. You told us last week. For going, who else did you meet? There you go. The prince of very good. Nice. The king's son. Anyone going to beat the prince? Sorry, there was a hand over here. Who, who was it? Yeah, Wendy, what was the? Very good. Very good. She remembered a story of reu- reunion 29 years later. And she remembered your face. You didn't remember hers. Oh, we, we, we won't go there. We won't go there. Yeah. This person is very improbable. First of all, this person is a Samaritan. Now, I don't know if you know much about Samaria. I didn't know heaps. I had to go and look it up. Who are these Samaritans? What's the big deal with them? A few hundred years earlier, the northern part of Israel, which was called Israel, had been invaded by Assyria. And what the Assyrians did, they were very good at this, they took the natives, well, not the natives, the Israelites, and they took them away. And in return, they brought back people from other lands and settled them there. And so the Israelites who were left had intermarried a whole bunch of people from other nations. So as far as the Jews were concerned, the people from the south, they were just their, their redneck cousins, a bunch of bastards, if you pardon my language. Right? They're just, they're, they've intermarried, they've intermingled, the bloodlines have been weakened. They really are no longer truly God's people. And not only had they intermarried, but they'd done away with a whole lot of the Old Testament. For the Samaritans, only the first five books of the Bible really count. And all the rest are just later editions. They're not really part of God's word. They don't really teach the true religion. The true religion is found in the first five books. And so that means that you have to worship God on Mount Gerizim instead of at Jerusalem. It means a whole bunch of religious differences. For the Jews, you just do not deal with Samaritans. The woman herself recognises this in verse 9, right? How can you ask me for a drink? And the author tells us, for Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Now I got kind of curious. Are there still Samaritans alive today? It's the sort of thing I think about, right? So I'm on Google. Thank you, Google. Finds all. Now, unfortunately, by the 1900s, there was only 100, 100 roughly, Samaritans left. So they were getting pretty close. They're still living at Mount Gerizim, still practicing this Old Testament law based on the Pentateuch. However, good news, they've been very prolific, whether by proselytizing or reproduction, I don't know which. But by last year, there were 760 of them. And this year, 777. So they're, they're popping out the babies. It's very good, right? Samaritans, these, these people in history who the Jews would have absolutely nothing to do with. And here is Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, a teacher, stopping to talk to a Samaritan. But it gets worse. For not only is this person a Samaritan, but a woman. 
Now, that's not a problem to us. Okay, you walk another street, you bump into a, a woman, hi, how you going, right? There, there's kisses, there's handshakes, we talk. We, it's not a problem for us. But this is a time steeped in sexism, in misogyny. The disciples, when they come back, the very next verse after the bit we read, right, verse 27, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with, not surprised to find him talking with a Samaritan, but surprised to find him talking with a woman. In fact, within one generation, the Pharisaic law would write in that all Samaritan women are menstruants from birth. They are unclean from the moment they are born and they have no hope of ever becoming clean. Okay, that's, That was the view of the day. That is the person that Jesus is coming to and wants to speak to. That is the person Jesus is reaching out to. Utterly improbable. In fact, as far as the Jews were concerned, immoral irreligious and not only all of that but it gets worse for this woman is an outcast do you notice what time of day it was we see in verse 6 it was the sixth hour midday it's the middle of the day in the desert and she's out carrying a water jar empty on the way there full on the way home oh, i grew up uh, in northeastern Argentina, it's not it's not really subtropical, it's sub-subtropical. But I want you to picture, right, summer's day, middle of the day, it's midday, it's 40 degrees. We, we know what 40 degrees feels like, right? We, we occasionally get them and we all complain about 40 degrees. Anyway, anyway, this is summer, day after day after day, 40 degrees. But it's not the nice Sydney 40 degrees, it's the hot, sweaty summer 90, 40 degrees, where you don't just get 40 degrees, but you get 90% humidity to go with it. Okay, And so what you can do in those sort of circumstances is nothing. Midday comes around, the shop's shut, school finishes, everybody goes home, the streets are deserted, you turn on the air conditioning and you have that most civilised of inventions, a siesta. Right? That's just what you do because it's so stinking hot that there's nothing else you can do. I love a siesta, we should, we should implement it in Australia, just saying. Uh, and this woman, in those circumstances, is out to pick up water. She's an outcast. The, the well was the social hub. This is where the women would gather and chat. And it, it's the TOs of the day, right? Let's go get a coffee. We're going down to the well to get water. We, we, we interact with each other. We, she's an outcast. She's a pariah. Jesus meets the most improbable person you could possibly picture. Which, by the way, if, if you are into the conspiracy theories down this end, it's a little bit of a problem because if you're going to write a story about a leader, why would you have him meet somebody like this? And she, even she gets that it's strange. What are you doing talking to me, she says. I was trying to come up with a modern-day equivalent. I, I, I struggle. I mean, it's a little bit hard. We don't have quite the same religious. We certainly don't have quite the same sexist um, boundaries. Picture for a moment the Pope going for a stroll through Syria and stopping to talk to an ISIS fighter. Right? It's kind of a little bit of the tension here. It's strange. It's unusual. What is going to happen? Why has Jesus stopped? Why is he talking to this person? And it turns out that he's talking to this improbable person because there's a problem. She thinks he has the problem. Fair enough. You're at the well. You've got no bucket. That's a problem, right? But as it turns out, she has an even greater problem. Why, why is she an outcast? Why is she going to the well in the middle of the day? Why the social isolation? 
Jesus has no problems picking up on it. He has no problems pointing it out. He says to her in verse 16, go, call your husband and come back. No, I have no husband. See, no ring, no ring, she says. yeah, Yeah, you're right, you have no husband. You've had five. And the man you now have is not your husband. Why is this woman an outcast? How do you get to a situation like this? Where you've had five husbands, five failed relationships, a string of them, and yet you still, even after all of those, have now gone and found a guy to shack up with. What could possibly cause her to go through these serial relationships despite the social cost to her, despite the problems it brings for her in life? What is she trying to do? She's trying so hard so very, very hard to fill the void in her life. The deep-seated longing. And what she's trying to fill it with is relationships, despite the fact that they fail one after the other after the other. She's trying to fill an emptiness that results in Jesus making an extraordinary promise to her. So this improbable person has a problem that's way deeper than even she realises. And Jesus makes a promise to her. Now, it's a promise that's very easy to misunderstand. It's a promise that's easy to get wrong. It's there in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that asks you for a drink, if you knew me, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. What's what's this living water business? Well, verse 13, he repeats it. Everyone who drinks this water, the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. You can understand why she misunderstands it. You can get it. I mean, she thinks Jesus is offering some sort of magic genie water bottle, right? You just whoop and water keeps coming out and it doesn't stop. It's brilliant. Don't have to go to the well anymore. Don't have to face the social isolation anymore. I don't have to be an outcast anymore. I'll have the magic water bottle. It's easy to misunderstand. I, I think Bear Grylls would have loved it if that was the case. You know Bear Grylls, Man vs. Wild? Have you seen that show, right? You haven't? Okay, it's just a survival guy. They put him in the wilderness and then make him eat and drink the most disgusting things they can find. Right? That's, that's basically how the show goes. Have you seen the episode where he's in the Australian outback? They, they drop him in the Australian outback. And what's in short supply in the Australian outback? Water, right? So what are you going to do? Hey, hey, what are you going to do for water, right? So what he does is he goes and he kills a snake ah, with his bare teeth and ah, rips its head off and then he skins it, right? So I've got a water bottle now, but what do I fill it with? Uh, you've seen, the ones who've seen it, right? So of course he fills it with his own urine and he carries it around for a while and eventually drinks it, right? Now he, he would have been cheering, endless water bottle. I never have to drink that, right? She misunderstands it because she doesn't see the problem. She misunderstands her own need. She thinks, I can get this water and I won't have to do the hard work of carrying a jug. I won't have to face the stigma anymore. But Jesus is not offering her the first century version of Gatorade. He's not giving her a hydrating drink. He's not really concerned about water and water from the well. He offers her living water. Not just living water, but water that brings life. 
He describes it in John chapter 7, a couple of pages over. John chapter 7 and verse 37, you can look it up if you want, uh, we'll read it. He describes this same thing. He says, on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And by this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Jesus sees this woman's need. It's not water from a well. It's something far deeper. It is a longing that is inside her very soul. And he offers her that which can satisfy. And not only satisfy, but burst forth into eternal life. That is, believe in me and you will receive the Spirit. Believe in me and I will fix the problem and I will fill the void. 2,000 years ago, Jesus met a woman. She was a very improbable person for him to meet. She had a real problem. A problem perhaps that even she didn't understand the magnitude of. And to her, Jesus made a promise. And you know, that's the business now, 2,000 years later, that Jesus is still in. He's still seeking to meet people. To meet very improbable people. Irreligious. Immoral. Perhaps even outcasts. People like you. And me. There is nobody that Jesus is not interested in meeting. You might think yourself the worst of the worst. You might see your life as a series of choices and actions that have resulted in nothing but shame and guilt to yourself and hurt to others. Jesus wants to meet you. You might think of yourself even as a religious person, as a moral person, as an okay, middle-class, wealthy Australian, educated, living a good life, occasionally given to the odd charity. Jesus still wants to meet you. And he wants to meet you because you and I have the same problem that that woman had. Not that we've been married five times and are now cohabitating. Oh, that might be your story, I don't know. But that's a symptom. That's the surface Presenting the, the, the real problem is the hole inside of each one of us. That deep-seated longing. That emptiness. So you and me, we were made. We were created. Somebody made us. We're not just a random atom smashing together such that evolution happened and here we are and we'll be gone tomorrow and nothing matters. Somebody made us. And the one who made us did so in order that we might be in relationship with him. That's what he made us for. And so we turn our backs on that relationship, walk away from him, and where does that leave us? Of course it leaves us dissatisfied. If we were built to be in relationship with him, we turn away from it, and what's left? Nothing but a huge God-shaped hole in our lives. And like this woman... We too try and fill it with all sorts of things. Whether we know that that emptiness is there or not, we feel it and we try and stuff into it whatever we can. Maybe relationships is our problem. I, I, I keep a vague eye on these statistics from the Australian Bureau each year 
and it's been a consistent trend over the last few years, there have been roughly 120,000 marriage licences issued each year and 50,000 divorces. Perhaps we're not too far from her problem after all. Our symptom is hers. But the reality is that we will grasp hold of any and everything to try and stuff it in that hole. Materialism has lied to us. We believe that the things of this world, and I don't mean things as in like physical things, right? Just your, your big screen TV, your fast car or whatever. All the things of this world, right? The, the lie that your work will satisfy you. That in relationships you can find fulfilment. That the next trip, the next experience, the next cruise, the next purchase, the next thing I do will satisfy. It's nothing but a lie. Our young people are caught up in this vicious cycle. They set a goal. They achieve it and have momentary euphoria. And then we're back to emptiness and planning the next one, the next trip, the next purchase, the next job. And I want to say to to Christians for a moment, to people who have Jesus up this end of the spectrum, we need to talk about this. We can't let the people around us remain blinded to the lies that materialism tells and that we buy into. And by we, I mean all of us, for we are wealthy middle-class Australians. We are wealthy middle-class human beings. Even if we are at the lower end of society in Australia, we are still wealthy. And so we buy the lies. And my money, it's squishy money, right? And so I can fit it into the hole and make it fill up pretty well and I can feel reasonably full. But it's a lie. How do we do it? How do we talk? What sort of a conversation would it look like tomorrow at work, at school, at uni? What will it look like when someone says to me, oh, how was your weekend? That's pretty good, actually. I played board games Thursday, Friday and Saturday. I mean, what more do you want in life, right? It was fantastic. I had a great time. What use is that conversation? All I've suggested is... The lies of materialism work. Board games have filled my void. However fun it may be, it won't satisfy. What could that conversation look like? Oh, I was at church on Sunday. And the minister said something that left me a bit worried, actually. He said that I I keep trying to do things in life, I don't know, like, like work 60, 70, 80 hours a week or... Right, I, just, I keep planning the next experience. I keep buying things. I keep, I keep looking for the next right person. I, I he told me that, that these things aren't going to work. I, I don't know. Maybe that's the start of the conversation. We need to get better at showing the lies of materialism for what they are because those around us need to know that they too have the problem. And in the end, all of the things that we try and shove in there They're not going to work. I caught Sophia last year. I keep telling stories about Sophia. Soon I'm going to have to stop and tell you stories about Ellie. But for now, it's all all right. It's still Sophia. Uh, She's three, kind of four now, so she was two last year. And I caught her trying to fill the bathtub. But she was doing it in the cutest possible way. She had a little chair up against, there's the, there's the sink here and the bathtub there, right? And she was standing up and she could just reach, she could just turn the tap on. And she had a little pink teacup 
And she had the tap on, and she was going from the tap into the bathtub, from the tap, right, trying to fill the bathtub up. And it was just the cutest thing you've ever seen, right? It was, it was such a precious moment. I just didn't have the heart to tell her that the plug wasn't in, right? I mean, yeah, what can you... <laughs> And here, here are we, with a little pink teacup, just dipping it into the brackish water of this world and thinking that we can fill up the hole with it. And the plug's not even in. We have that problem, and the problem is this, that we need our sin, our guilt, our shame dealt with before God, such that restored to relationship with him, our despair and our hopelessness might be removed. We need that God-shaped hole filled. And Jesus, the promise that he made to her, he makes to you and to me. Did you hear that promise? Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. I will bring you back into relationship with the one who made you. I will do what's necessary so that that hole can be filled and life can flow out from you once again. Now, we live in a world that loves truth. The problem is it loves any truth and every truth. We live in a world where you can pursue your own ideas and that's okay, that's valid, that's valid for you, that's your truth. Good on you for pursuing that, for being sincere in your truth. I had the opportunity this week to hear a conversation uh, that included a Unitarian Universalist minister. There you go. I'd never heard about Unitarian Universalism before uh, until about three weeks ago when somebody in my Bible study asked me about it. So I'm oh, okay, or well, anyway. And, uh, and we were driving down to regional conference this week and Joe, as he does, put on one of his podcasts. And it turned out to be a conversation that involved two universalist, Unitarian Universalists, one of whom is a minister. And he was talking about what he does and, and, and what his sermons are in church, effectively, because they get together for church and he preaches sermons, and, and where he gets his sources of inspiration from. Oh, the Bible is definitely one truth, he said. But you can find truth anywhere and everywhere. And that's the beauty of the Unitarian Universalist, is that I can go and find inspiration from anywhere I like to preach to my congregation, to inspire them, to bring them on to better things, to put more little band-aids over that gaping wound. We live in a world that loves truth, every truth. But Jesus says there is a truth. In fact, I am the truth. I am the way, I am the life, says Jesus. You can be sincere if you like, but what you need is me. What you need is Jesus. The woman is sincere. She brings the argument around to conversations about religious differences. Isn't that often the way? You start to talk to somebody about God and they think, oh, well, I know something about religion and all you end up talking about is the little things that they want to bring up and the differences and you get caught up in arguments and off you go. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life, and he meant it. You and me, we are very improbable people for the creator of the universe to want to meet. We have a problem. We have a big 
God-shaped hole. It's not, it's not a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle with one piece missing. It's one of my kids' ones that has three pieces and the middle one is missing. And Jesus says, I can fill it. I can do what is needed so that you can come back to knowing God and God will come to you by his Spirit. Who is Jesus to you? Back where we started. Maybe you're somewhere down here and, and he's not real and it's all a conspiracy or he's the person in history but he's a good teacher or maybe even he's some sort of really special prophet or spiritual being. Or If you sit anywhere along there in the spectrum, I would encourage you, you need to find out more. You need to listen to this one because if that claim is real, if that claim is true, then you need Jesus. You need Jesus. See what happened with the Samaritans when they did, in fact, meet Jesus for themselves. This is the end of the story over in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him, in Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. This is the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. They believed, okay, off the back of that. So when the Samaritans, when they came to Jesus, they urged him to stay with him. He stayed two days and because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. But now we have heard for ourselves. We know this man really is the saviour of the world. I want to invite you to a series of dinners. Starting Monday next week, we call it the Life Course. Six weeks of meeting in a very friendly, very open environment, to find out more about this one and the claims that he makes. To ask your questions, to hear what the Bible has to say, to hear the claims that Jesus makes, to weigh it up. But maybe you're down the very end. Maybe you're, you're, you're a Christian. You, you, know, you know what Jesus does. You have met him. He has filled your life by his Spirit. Now, life's still hard. This side of heaven we still suffer and yet we live in the hope of what is to come. We live now with the comfort of Jesus. Then I want to say to you, please, please value the lives of your friends. Please. They, they, don't, they don't need another friend who can have a bottle of wine and tell a good story with them, although that's a good thing to do. They don't need another friend to watch movies with, although that's a good thing to do. They don't need a friend to go camping with and have great experiences with, although that's a good thing to do. They need somebody who will help them see the problem that is causing frustration in this life and will result in condemnation in the next. Please, please value the lives of your friends. We need to get better at helping people see the gaping hole that not knowing their God has left. Now, I hope this is the beginning of a conversation. I'm not telling you to go out the door today and you need to have two, you need to do two ways to live with every single one of your friends. Although if you do do that, praise God. Right? I'm not saying don't do that, but I'm not telling you that's what you need to do. But this is the beginning of a conversation. Tomorrow, when you get to work, how are you going to plant that seed of doubt that says what you are living for right now is not working? Tuesday, how are you going to water that seed a little bit and suggest that maybe there's a better way? Wednesday, how are you going to prune that little... Do you get what I'm saying? 
Think about what is the next step for me. Where do I go from here? Each one of my friends, my family, that I value, that I love, that I care for, that I want to also meet Jesus. For they too are improbable people with a deep-seated problem that needs the promise of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus would stop and speak with and meet such an improbable person as us. Thank you that he looks into our lives and sees our sin as well. He sees our guilt and our shame and even still he reaches out with the promise. And so, Father, please may we drink the living water that is Jesus. Fill the void in our lives left created when we turned our backs on you. And by your spirit, please, would you make us fountains of living water, springs from which eternal life flows. Bring us into eternal life. And please, Father, through us, bring others into eternal life also. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.